Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys and a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Well, Merry Christmas, Craig. Merry Christmas. It (laughs) It snuck right up, yeah. It really did. It feels like this month flew right by. We had a blast doing three Christmas-themed horror movies, uh, strangely skewed towards Santa slashers this year. Uh Uh-huh. I think there were just a lot of those out, but we also had the opportunity to get together in person. Yeah, that was nice. Unforgettable. Really nice to see a movie in the theater. You know, one of the few movies in the theater I had actually seen at all since the COVID era started. Uh Uh-huh. So um, that was cool and especially special to uh, be sitting there with you in the dark watching uh, Violent Night. That's what it was. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it was fun. So uh, the movie that we are doing this week, we decided to put towards our patrons. Uh, We put up a little poll and uh, all three of the movies that I pulled them with were like Silent Night, Something Night. I said, which Silent Night movie would you like us to do for the Christmas season? And I think Craig was really gunning for what was it called? Silent Night. <laughs> Silent Night, yeah. <laughs> with a, a more, more modern movie with, uh, what's her name, Kira Knightley in it and uh-huh. a, a bunch of others. But um, the patrons spoke and they preferred that we do Silent Night, Bloody Night. Very moody 1972 horror movie that uh, has been in the public domain actually for a while. Yeah, um, be- because it wasn't registered with the U.S. Copyright Office uh, after it was released, which is no longer necessary. But a lot of really um, notorious horror movies, such as uh, *Night of the Living Dead*, and a lot of the ones that Elvira would do on yeah. her show, which you know have later gained a cult following, are in public domain due to those laws. Um, stupid things, right? Like, oh, we just didn't put a copyright notice on the credits or whatever. Right. That's maybe the most interesting thing about this movie is that, you know, as, as, as soon as it finished its run in like the drive-thru circuit, it became public domain and then nobody really talked about it again until Elvira featured it on uh, one of her shows. And then I guess from that point forward, it kind of gained a cult following. Maybe you can explain to me why. <laughs> I don't. Well, I, I agree with you that this movie is not fantastic, but I don't think it's by far one of the mo- most interesting things about this movie. One of the patrons that uh, really wanted to see this movie put a little comment on the page that uh, Mary Warrenoff sold her yeah. uh, on this movie. Mary Warrenoff is one of the, the stars in here, uh-huh. and she she is a cult actress who I think you and I really like. Oh yeah, yeah, I like her. I I can never. We've seen her in several movies. the The mm. only one that I can remember is that one where aliens came through the satellite dish. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, Terror Vision. Yeah, Terror Vision. I know she's been in several other movies we've watched, but that's always the one that comes to mind. She would always show up on those USA Up All Night movies, yeah. and not always in horror movies, right? Lots of like sex comedies and things like that. Uh-huh. She had a very brief role at the beginning of Killbots, just sort of like a cameo role. Yeah. Uh, otherwise known as Chopping Mall. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. She was. She's interesting. You know, she was a member of Andy Warhol's Entourage. I read back that. In, yeah, back when, uh, I, I guess she visited there during a class trip, huh. <laughs> which is interesting, and uh, decided to stick around. Uh, this is her first, I believe, her first film role, and uh, she got it because she was actually married to the director, right. um, the director Theodore Gershany. He did one or two other movies after this. Uh, he wrote and directed this one. He co-wrote it with um, a guy named Jeffrey Konovitz, who wrote the novel The Sentinel. 
Oh. And also uh, co-wrote the screenplay for that. Have I don't think we've done The Sentinel yet on here, have we? No. It's been on my list, though. That's one of those satanic cult-type movies that I kind of like from the 70s. Anyway, we'll do that eventually. Aside from that, and this movie and uh, one other movie that's kind of a thriller, erotic thriller, Like uh, it doesn't seem like the director, Theodore Gershony, did much uh, after this. Neither did uh, Jeffrey Konovitz after he did The Sentinel. He did a f- he produced a few things a couple decades later. But then when you look at the cast of this, there's it's kind of impressive. Stable of older horror, older movie stars who are maybe a little bit past their prime or coming up into that to that point. Yeah, this is a canon released film, and they were sort of notorious for doing this. Of course, I think this was the first film that canon releasing did later in the 80s they would go on to do like chuck norris movies and these action thrillers and horror just like all kinds of crazy stuff the masters of the universe movie that was so terrible back then you know i think we did a whole episode where we talked in depth about uh canon and i can't remember which movie it was that we were reviewing i don't don't remember i don't remember at all (laughs) <laughs> but I think that's kind of interesting. This is their first one. And also one of the co-producers on here is Lloyd Kaufman, oh. who would later go on to co-found uh, Troma. Yeah. I believe that after he did this, he was running around. He did some, I think, some location scouting or something for Saturday Night Fever. He popped around a little bit in the Hollywood area before he decided to go and do a movie called Battle of Love Returns which then kind of went off to co-found trauma. So, so this was like around that era. So it's it's sort of this interesting point where all of these interesting characters are in this otherwise, this movie that was quite forgettable for the time. Let's see, what we can name off a few other people. John Carradine is in here. Uh-huh. In a non-speaking role. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it was cheaper that way. I don't know. And is that is he like David Carradine's dad? Yeah, uh-huh. We did a, a movie, I think it was a little later than this. It was early 80s or late 70s called Monster Club. Oh, right. Remember, he and Vincent Price were in the beginning. He was definitely oh, a little that's older right. in that movie. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Definitely spoke in that one. <laughs> yeah. He has a long history. Patrick O'Neill, I think, um, pretty notable. He starts out as a guy in this movie named John Carter. Yeah. That was another interesting thing about this movie. They, that, um, they pulled a psycho. Mm. Uh, the the people that I thought were going to be the main characters for the movie got killed first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> kind of suddenly, didn't they? Uh-huh. And, 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 you know, also, I couldn't believe when I was watching this movie, there was a point where I was like, wait a minute. I had to look up and see if Black Christmas came out before or after this. And it turns out it came out after this because there is such a striking similarity between the killer in this movie and the killer in Black Christmas that I True. cannot for a moment believe that it was not influenced. And and it turns out this, yeah, this movie was shot like four years before Black Christmas came out. I think it was released two years after it was shot. So still two years before Black Christmas. I have no doubt that Bob Clark must have seen this. That's funny. You know, I hadn't really thought about that, but you're right. You know, the the killer making phone calls and talking in a funny voice and yeah, claiming and- to be somebody... Yeah, oh my gosh, there are a lot of similarities. I hadn't thought of that. It's also got... Breaking into a house and hang, 
hanging out up there. Uh huh. It's also got kind of a giallo feel with you know the killer in the black leather gloves and lots of killer POV and like heavy breathing behind the camera. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's kind of interesting when you think about it. You put this at 1972. Just before sort of the slasher craze, which we sort of credit Black Christmas mm-hmm. with kicking off, which then influenced Halloween, which then right. kicked everything into high gear. This movie's actually got some, it, it, you could almost argue it set a tone. Yeah. It set up a few of these standards. Of course, we've also reviewed a Giallo film uh, called Bay of Blood, which also has, you know, I mean, it's complicated. The history of horror, you know, has a lot of influences from a lot of different places. But I would be not convinced if you tried to tell me that this movie completely flew under the radar and did not influence anybody uh, who later came along because there are some very direct and solid influences there. Regardless of what, you know, I mean, it's it's slow. (laughs) It is slow. It's moody. It feels kind of old school. I yeah. Yeah, I, I I feel like, I don't know, I could just be making this up, but it feels like it kind of comes from a time period where they could take their time. Um, mm. I feel like we're a little bit more impatient today. Um, yeah. But, because it is, it's a slow burn. Uh, I don't know, ultimately, like... I kind of felt like the whole time, like I didn't know what was going on. Yeah, like I couldn't, I couldn't keep track of who was who and when was when because, mm. like, a lot of stuff happened in the distant past, and then some things happened in the recent past, and then things were happening in the current time. And by the end, when it finally was over and it was kind of revealed what was going on, I was like. What? <laughs> I know. The ending is a little unsatisfying, <laughs> to say the least. But it's narration heavy. There's a lot of narration. There's a lot of flashback. Also, you know, usually flashback is rather quick, right? We get a flashback. We kind of see, you know, what happened. And then we come back to present day. With this, the last flashback in this movie that sort of explains everything goes on for like 10 minutes. <laughs> it's long. Yeah. And it's in it's complete. It's shot in a different style. It's weird. Like all like, out of nowhere, you're kind of in like a silent movie from the 30s. Yeah, <laughs> it's weird. Sepia toned, uh-huh. kind of black and very monochromatic sepia tone. It's very artsy, and I think so. I was reading, and uh, Mary Warrenoff has a quote uh, that she talked about uh, for this movie, and she said, "Silent Night, Bloody Night was terrible. We were given a weird script." And Ted, the director, tried to spark it up. He tried to make it an artistic statement, but it didn't work. It didn't even make much sense. Most people couldn't understand what was going on, which is not good, particularly for a horror film. And I think that's pretty fair. Yeah, uh uh-huh. She nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you all for listening to this episode. No, actually, I think... All right, I agree with almost everything that she said. I don't think it's a terrible movie because I can see what it was trying to do, but like you said, it was just not entertaining enough to pull it off. Uh Uh-uh. Yeah, well, and there were just, like you said, like the heavy narration, it goes on for so Mm. long. Like It's silly. It is, and it... uh, 
I like I don't I don't care and it's and it's taking itself <laughs> so seriously like and again like I didn't know what was happening I didn't know who any of these people were it, it just throws you right in in the beginning with her yeah. I guess Mary Warrenoff like revisiting this house and and she's telling us in this very serious voiceover that like she's revisiting this place once more before it's demolished and I don't know like I have it in my notes that she grew up there but like is that even true i don't know no it it seems like it right i mean it gives that impression i think the movie is trying very hard at the beginning to set up this sort of gothic tale of generations right yeah it's really got that vibe and and initially that's kind of captivating you know oh it's the mysterious house kind of but i i couldn't even understand like i couldn't follow the timeline i because they say that the guy who built the house got put into a mental institution but then he came back and then <laughs> yeah, <caught on> fire. <laughs> that, that's really funny. It's it's a house in the snow, and we're getting all this in narration, but then we're getting to see some of this happen in the backtrack. It's supposed to be the day before Christmas in 1950, and suddenly this guy comes stumbling out of the house, and he's on fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fully and immersed in flame. He runs out into the snow and tries to, I guess, put. He doesn't try very hard actually to put himself out. I mean. He's in the snow. He could maybe. Anyway, uh, he falls down, and then we get a shot from inside the house through the window of the guy burning in the snow in the distance. Some old lady just, like, playing piano. <laughs> yeah, it slowly pulls back through the house, and then there's a person in there playing, like, a harpsichord or piano or something. All of us believe that his death was an accident. No one knew that another person had come to Butler House that Christmas. Yeah, What? But I mean, it's setting up a central mystery, right? There was this kind mysterious of, death. But by the yeah, but by the time that mystery was solved, I had forgotten about like <laughs> I had forgotten that whole. But then nobody else, nobody knew that someone else had come to. Uh, okay, I, I totally forgot about that. But then, it, but, but see, then like it jumps around in time because they're like, well, and then they buried Wilford butler on new year's day so i guess he was like the owner Mm -hmm. and the guy the guy who built it and the guy got burnt up but then it said he left his house to his grandson jeffrey yes but then the house was empty for 20 years and then it shows somebody breaking out of another mental institution yes and i didn't know who it was and i thought it was jeffrey and i thought it was jeffrey for a long time but i think we're supposed to yeah. Uh, I didn't mm-hmm. know what was going on. I was totally lost <laughs> and bored. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree with you. In being deliberately misleading, it's a little, it's confusing. That's the problem. It, you know, there's a fine line, right, in, in withholding information, creating some intrigue, doing some foreshadowing and whatnot. But if you don't do it well enough, then you're just confused and unsettled you know through the whole thing and i i felt i i agree i was waiting for all this to come together and it didn't really come together towards the end and then i was questioning myself like what did i really know or did i miss something throughout a lot of it i just want to i want to at least point out a few things i liked about the movie i really liked that point of view of the killer bits uh where he broke out of the mental institution beats a bunch of people over the head with like a wrench or something a wrench and and drives the car and takes off i thought that was kind of interesting and well shot and then that you know she says a man who came to sell the house had never seen it he was just a man doing a job 
And that's when the couple pulls up to this house taking pics and selfies. And there's this woman who I never caught her name. I don't know if it was ever uttered. The girlfriend? Like his, the girl that he's with? Yeah, I think it's... It must her be name's his Ingrid, I think. Ingrid. Okay. Uh, Astrid Heron. This, this was... It was also weird because... Okay, so when they introduced this guy who's played by Patrick O'Neill, I feel like I should know him from something. He looks really familiar, but I... Couldn't figure out what I know him from. His name's John Carter, Carter, and he's just there to sell the house. And he goes and meets with the mayor, and then the mayor introduces him to this, like, shady... <laughs> it's like the the people who run the town or something, but it's they're like... They're all weird. They're all weird. And uh, he, it's the sheriff and the switchboard operator, who's yes! a lady, <laughs> and the newspaper editor, who is... Uh, the guy who doesn't talk, uh, played by the guy that we already talked about. His John Carradine, yeah. John Carradine, mm-hmm. his name's Toman, and he doesn't talk for unexplained reasons. And they're weird. Like, <laughs> the mayor is introduced, and I don't even know what's happening on, or what's going on. The The guy, John Carradine, like, just every once in a while, he'll ring a bell. Just, and mm-hmm. that's it. Like, he just does. And it's his way nobody, of communicating. And everyone seems to understand anything. what he's saying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And they seem like like the the whole group of them seem like I don't know they're just super shady. You're like, why are they so weird? And why are they just sitting around a table silently and staring? Like, mm-hmm. it's so weird. I don't know what's going on. And apparently, they say that uh, Carter says, "I know that the town wanted to buy the house. Well, I've got a deal for you." Well, do you still want the house? Are you offering it to us, Mister Carter? Exactly. Why now? Well, that's Mr. Butler's business, isn't it? You know we're not rich. Most of us came here during the Depression. But we love this town. It's our home. And naturally, you want to improve it. Exactly. My client understands that, and he fully sympathizes, and he's willing to sacrifice the house. For $50,000 in cash by noon tomorrow. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why is the town buying a house? It, it's weird because it's, there's, the, there's the impression left that the, the town is embarrassed by the house, right? That it's a scandalous place because something terrible had happened there. And I'm thinking, just what? This just because this guy burned up? Anyway, and then and then yeah, my idea was oh maybe the town wants to buy the house so that they can tear it down. And and it is true. Like I think later the mayor asks the group, so what are we going to do when we buy the house? One of them says burn it down. But yeah, they're weird, right? They're all sitting around the table on one side staring. They're just off. Yeah. And later on we find out why. Yeah. Which is funny. <laughs> yeah, really funny. But just, I don't know. The, like, ser- honestly, I really didn't know what was going on. Yeah. I, I somehow missed that that house had been turned into an asylum for a while. Like, I thought... Nope. I don't think it was told at this point yet. I don't think okay. anybody knew it at this point. Yeah, I don't think we find that out until the end. Well, um. so then this killer... Again, who we don't have any idea who it is. You know, black coat, black gloves. That's all we see. And then we see from their point of view, 
they show up and like I feel like the the movie is still kind of trying to trick us into thinking that it's Jeffrey because Jeffrey is also arriving. Yeah. Um but but he's not masked or gloved or anything. Somebody drives by Jeffrey. I think it was Mary Warnoff's it's character. It's the it is. I couldn't tell the two women apart at first and that was confusing me also. But yes, mm. it is her. Like he's like along the side of the road and I think he's like holding a wrench, like maybe his car had broken down or something, but we had just seen somebody else kill somebody or, or at least threaten somebody with a wrench. Yeah. Ugh, God, I it's didn't know. It's a red herring. And, and she just, she drives by and just looks at him like... And then he smashes the windows. He's trying to flag her down, but she doesn't stop because he's shady. He smashes the windows? I don't yeah. remember that. Why? Yeah, he smashes the windshield and... I still don't know why. I, I really have no idea what car that was and why he smashed the window the windows. <laughs> I don't know. Oh. It's weird. And then the 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 killer stabs a dog outside of the house for no reason. I guess it was a guard dog or or maybe it was just a dog that was annoying him. Yeah, I I thought, "Oh, Craig, <laughs> I'm sorry. Every time there's cruelty to animals, I always think of you, Craig. Well, that one bothered me. <laughs> Sometimes they have it coming, but that dog was just not bothering him. Plus, fine, it's a guard dog, whatever. There's nobody else around. What are you afraid of? Like, yeah. <laughs> Just go in the house. Leave the dog alone. <laughs> well, I might maul you, you know? I mean, who knows? Oh, might like a nice Might dog. bark and let other people know you're there. <laughs> so anyway, but anyway, this gloved person is just like prowling around the house and then Carter and his girlfriend, I guess. Well, he goes like inside. It, yeah, they go in. They go inside. The, well, first of all, the bad guy, go, the, the the killer, breaks into the house and goes in. There's some stuff of him kind of wandering around POV shot uh, in the house before the couple shows up. Yeah, and then I was not really confused. I guess they were just kind of trying to set it up that this Carter guy is a dick because uh, yeah. at, sometimes he ca- at some point he calls like his kid, like his little kid, and mm-hmm. talks to her and his wife, apparently... Yeah. But he's there with this bimbo. I don't know. I don't know anything about her. She's probably lovely. (laughs) (laughs) But she's definitely a side piece. Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking that they are like it. It's, it seems like they're going to be the main characters. Like, Carter and, and Ingrid are going to be the main characters. But then they're just inside, and they go to bed go to bed together, and the creepy guy's just creeping around. And then they get axed, both of them, in the bed. And yeah. um, lots of blood, blood splattering everywhere, you know, mm-hmm. bloody hands. Brutal. Blood, yeah. And at that point, that first killer is like, okay, I might be able to get into this. Because that mm-hmm. was a pretty, like, even though it wasn't super graphic, um, like, you didn't really see a lot of, like, the, the hits. You, uh, you didn't really see the axe hit, but it was really bloody. And Well, I thought it was kind of a, f- I don't, can't believe I'm making this comparison, but I thought it was kind of effective in the same way that, you know, the shower scene in Psycho is yeah. effective. You didn't see the axe hit, but gosh, you saw hit, uh, limbs flailing and blood everywhere, and, and it was pretty, I felt, very skillfully done kill for not ever seeing the axe hit the body. Exactly. And I was thinking the same thing. And I was thinking, I was, I was like, okay, I mean, if, if it's going to be this kind of movie, 
I can at least get on board for that. But then <laughs> you have then, to wait a while. <laughs> you have to wait a while, and then it doesn't like I don't know. I, I don't even remember. I just watched this yesterday. I don't even remember what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Let me fill in some gaps because I just finished watching it right before we watched this okay. before we started recording. <laughs> First of all, uh, Patrick O'Neill, uh, he, he was a TV actor. Like, he would pop into TV shows all the time. I, 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 he might have had one series that he was a primary actor on, but he was all over television in the 70s, a little bit in the 80s. Um, he was in the original Stepford Wives in uh-huh, 75. Yeah. He, I think his last role was uh, Captain Adams in Under Siege. I think he was the captain of okay. the boat before uh, it gets taken, which is one of my favorite Steven Seagal movies. Oh my God! You have a favorite Steven Seagal movie? <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah! I have a favorite Van Damme movie too. Um, oh jeez, the one that okay. takes place in the hockey rink. Which one is that? Oh God, I don't know. It's actually pretty good. I don't know. Right, Edit anyway. this out. <laughs> <laughs> what does that say something about me? What are you trying to say? <laughs> Dude, I grew up in the '90s, right? I mean, we were watching all. You were too. Don't don't pretend. I don't know. I never really could get on board with Seagal. I'll give you Van Damme, well, especially not now. But yeah, he was always, <laughs> he was always a little weird. But uh, he's really yeah, gone he's, off the rails. Yeah, he's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs these days. Yeah, he's a Russian citizen now, isn't he? So I don't know. He's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so, I thought, all right, I agree with you. I thought the kill was cool. I was like, all right, this is kind of, you know, what I was looking for. Anyway, yeah, the the, the dude kills them with the axe, and uh, then he picks up what looks like a Bible, opens it to a marked page, places a crucifix in the dead guy's hand. Yeah. All these things I thought were going to be significant, right? I don't think they were. No, I don't understand it. No, I expected it to be some religious thing, you know, mm-hmm. like... Like or some like religious guilt thing or some or, or or this guy you know is punishing them because they're sinners or something you know like there are so many possibilities things that we've seen in these movies over and over again even like Silent Night Deadly Night you know yeah the, the kid you know has all of these terrible feelings about sex because of mm-hmm. you know seeing his parents his mother like raped by Santa and then you know growing <laughs> up in this you know Catholic nun run orphanage so like there was motivation there for like this religious kind of stuff but here yeah i you see it happen you see him like open the bible and like lay it down and then put the crucifix clearly there has to be some reason for that no no (laughs) not at all not that i could tell anyway no well then in very uh, black christmas style slash giallo style these gloved hands pick up the phone and dial and tess is the is it's funny because Tess is introduced in that group earlier in the meeting in the mayor's office as their communications director. Well, let's just say she's our communications director is what they say about her. And I'm like, that's a weird way to introduce this woman. Mm-hmm. And then you realize she's a switchboard operator. Like, uh-huh. oh, my gosh. Even in 1972. Like, think about that for a minute. Right. Yeah. Wow. So or or I think small towns even still had this. Because I also remember Black Christmas only four years later um, has this big deal about them tracing the phone call. And they're literally in the the telephone um, oh, right. building, right? Yeah. Running up and down uh-huh. these physical switches and stuff looking. I mean, so that was kind of interesting. He picks up the phone and ends up with her. And uh, the dude says he's the owner of the house and that Carter is not there. I'm just going to play this audio because this 
sounds exactly like the dude from Black Christmas. What's that? Tess, I want to see you again. Hello? Who is this? You know me, Tess. It's Marianne. Tell the mayor. Tell them all. I'm waiting in my father's house. Tess, it's so lonesome here. Don't belong. I'm like... Who the fuck is Mary Ann? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and you sound, you don't sound like a Mary Ann. <laughs> no, it sounds like a man barely disguising their voice. Oh, yeah. I, I, at that point, I was actually kind of intrigued. I was like, holy crap. That's when I went back and looked up Black Christmas. Yeah. And, it, and found out this movie came years before. So it's pretty creepy, actually. It was creepy. Yeah. And eventually she does go there, which I don't even understand why. Like... Well, she knows what, right? She knows who this is. I guess. We don't know at this point or what the <laughs> connection is. She dials the sheriff. There's no answer. Um, she dials, I guess, the, the, the next woman on her shift asking if she can come by early. And then um, we see the guy who had previously smashed the windows. Jeffrey. Jeffrey, who we later learn is Jeffrey Butler. Uh, who is the He's grandson. The grandson who's inheriting the house, right? Mm-hmm. He goes into the car that the couple left outside the door, finds that the keys are in there, and takes it off, takes off. So I'm thinking, well, the movie wants us to think that he's the killer because he's at the house and he leaves in the car, but it's not going to be that simple. So immediately I realize, well, this guy's not the killer, but he's associated with the house. And and Warnoff is at home somewhere wrapping presents. The, the movie's very Christmas, right? I mean, I guess. there's there's Christmas throughout it. It happens on Christmas Eve, I think most of it, or a day or two before. The movie's um, anchored in an event that took place uh, Christmas many years ago. Yeah, they sing Silent Night a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Suspiciously so, yeah. It's like the movie that, you know, keeps repeating its its title. Yeah. I uh, God, I just don't know. It, we don't know I, I who don't she know what, is. That's well, the yeah, problem. We find out who she, but that's the thing. Like, she kind of just pops up out of nowhere. Like, doesn't, does Jeffrey show, okay, so Jeffrey shows up at her house. Yep. And the reason that he shows up there is because she's the mayor's daughter. So he's looking for the mayor, mm-hmm. but the mayor's not home, but she's there. With a lot of shotguns. <laughs> did, did you notice that? There were like five guns like hanging yeah. on the wall. I don't know. I guess the mayor, you know, is not well liked or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> He's got but I really like Mary Warrenoff because uh, she's tough. Yes. Like she always, uh, first of all, I think she's really tall. If I remember correctly, She, I think she's really tall. She's a statuesque woman. Like she's got really kind of defined facial features. But in all of the things that I've, all of the things that I've seen her in, have been after this. She's yeah. really young uh, yeah. in this movie and just really, really beautiful. Um, and and not that she then just turned ugly. I mean, she was always beautiful, <laughs> but she's just so young in this. It was kind of cool to see. I've never seen her this young. Me uh, neither. It, well, I mean, it was her first role, so nobody had. Yeah, and 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 she's she's kind of a badass, you know. She's yeah. a no nonsense. You know, this guy who she doesn't know comes to her house, and so she 
She pulls a shotgun on him, doesn't she? <laughs> yeah, she does. She's like the demands to see his ID, all that stuff. Uh, you know, I she had a bit of a Jamie Lee Curtis vibe. I uh-huh, thought. Uh huh. Yeah. In fact, if you you know if you squinted a little bit, you might think she was her. Could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was similar in performance. Uh, you know, with some of Jamie Lee Curtis's roles, similar in looks. I think in some ways when she was yeah. younger, like this. Uh-huh. I, I was into it, I, but again, I was like you. I was a little confused. I'm like, this is a little too much to ask for me to keep all this in my head, right? Uh-huh. They introduced her really, really early on, but gave no indication that she was the mayor's daughter. So right. that wasn't fair. That wasn't nice. <laughs> but eventually she does. She reveals it, that she's the mayor's daughter. He's not there, blah, blah, blah. He says he just wants to get into the house and he's looking for the keys. Right. I guess he thinks the mayor has the keys? To everyone's house. <laughs> I, <laughs> that's, I wa. Fun fact, I was a mayor of a, of a city at one point, and I'm telling you, when they hand you that key to the city, it's, it, it doesn't really, it's not a skeleton key. <laughs> It'd be cool if it was. Purely symbolic. I'd run, I'd run for mayor if I got a skeleton key to the whole town. <laughs> You'd be really a lot more choosy about who you elected for mayor. I probably never would have got elected. True. That's true. <laughs> but, but yeah. At this, like, okay, so I didn't notice that it was happening, but... As it turns out, like, then it just kind of sets it up as a series of ways to mess with that, like, city board of trustees or whoever it was that we've met. Yeah. It just, like, kind of one by one, they Mm -hmm. get messed with. And I think that Tess is the first one, right? Like, the the person on the phone. No? She leaves, but the sheriff is the first one. The sheriff, so she says, the sher- oh, the sheriff might have the keys. You should check oh, him out. Right, and right. So they go and drive, but the sheriff is actually en route to the house. And we hear this through the radio. It's like a radio thing. Right. Uh, I think Tess finally got a hold of her. Somebody got a hold of her. Actually, I'm not quite clear on that. But the sheriff, for reasons I don't understand, pulls over at Alfred Butler's grave. Yeah. We've seen Alfred Butler's grave from the flashback, so we know it's there, and I guess it's close to the grounds it's one of these graves in the woods you know right and so i'm not sure why he pulls over there i think he saw a light or something oh i don't i could totally be making that up i don't remember but i thought you're probably right i thought he saw a light or headlights or a flashlight or something i don't know but yeah he goes and i feel like it is like a little graveyard because there are other little graves Mm -hmm. around it but the the main one the the guys um is this great big like cross uh, with his name carved in it and everything, um, but then he gets hit in the back of the head with a shovel, right? Yeah, and then killed, I think, with yeah, the shovel. He does pick up a diary. There's a diary there. Alfred Butler's diary is there. He picks it up, kind of looks at it, but again, he gets killed. So there's nothing he can do with it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not sure why the diary was there. Honestly, I mean. In retrospect, I guess the killer was holding it. I I don't know why he set it down. Right. For the sheriff to find before he killed him. Because it's not like he opens it and looks through it or anything. No. It comes back later, but... uh. Yeah. Oh, God. (laughs) But see, and then it's all, like, I don't know. It's so weird. Like, the, the... Somebody, uh, I, I feel so. Jeffrey and um, what's Mary Warrenoff's character? D- Diane. They Diane. return to her house. Jeffrey and Diane. They're like a team mm-hmm. from now on, and and eventually they like they find the sheriff's car, and there's weird stuff going on. But Tess goes to the house. Is she looking for the sheriff too? I think so. 
And maybe like maybe when she gets to the house, maybe his car is there or something. I don't know. No. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. All I remember is that she ends up going into the house and then it's she does. A, a weird scene that I like on its own. I enjoyed. I, it was difficult for me to be into this movie, but th- it was kind of spooky when she gets in there. And I don't know if the lights go out or they already were out. Tess is one of the last people to get killed. Is she? And we're by then we're 50 minutes in, but a few more things happen. So okay. the, Jeffrey Butler and uh, Diane return to her place. Um, they say, well, we'll just wait here because my grandfather should, sh- my, my father should show up because we have dinner every Thursday night. Right, right. Eventually they decide, well, we're just going to go to the house instead. They find his grandfather's grave, the sheriff's glasses there. And right. You know, that's when he was like, look, the lawyer's missing, the sheriff is missing, we're getting strange phone calls. They got a weird call, too, I think. And she suggests they go down the road to the town to get help, because it's only 10 minutes away. And then back at the newspaper, Mr. Talman is there. He's, he bids goodnight to his employee. Then the mayor is in his car. He's driving. I guess he's driving back home. I'm not sure. And then we see Mr. Talman the newspaper guy putting black gloves on. I thought, oh, wait a minute. Uh, They're not trying to say he killed anybody, are they? He shows up. He writes on a piece of paper that Tess has gone to the house. Butler asks Talman to drive him there. They go out to his very classic car, which, you know, I was was going back and doing the math. There are a lot of really old-looking cars in this movie, like 1940s-style cars. And then I'm thinking, yeah, I guess in 1972, Mm -hmm. you know, that would be like... Me and getting running across a car that was done and then, you know, it was made in the 90s or 80s. Uh, I guess so. And that leads leads him to Tess's place. And Talman Why is, is that? That doesn't make any sense. He drove, yeah, like, think... because didn't Jeff ask him to take him to the house? house? Yeah. yeah, like and the he, house. He just drives them there anyway to Tess's place. And Jeffrey's like, well, well, this isn't the house. And Talman seems to be trying to communicate something. He's distraught. And learns that someone has called there before. Uh, then Diane gets a creepy phone call. And the, the guy on the line, Marianne, asks her to bring her father to the house. Tell him I have the diary. I'm waiting. Uh, and yes. he gives her a date, 1935. And she wonders how she's going to know what the deal is. And he just says he'll know. And that's when we see Tess at the house. Mm-hmm. And she, she sees someone up. with a flashlight inside. And she thinks it's the sheriff because his car's out there. But then it's dark in the house and killer <laughs> the killer has a flashlight and shines it right in her face. It's like, you can't see me, but I can see you. <laughs> and, and then he tells her she's fat. <laughs> You're older now and fatter. <laughs> <laughs> that was my favorite part. It's like, oh, good to see you again. You're fat. <laughs> and but so then he kills her. With an axe. So then Diane does some research. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and she finds out that Marianne was 15 and she was, God, I don't even, was this in a newspaper? I think she's like, I don't know. It's yeah, research mode. Yeah, it's research mode. It's like newspaper, I think. Uh, I, I even have in my notes, check Wikipedia for this because I wasn't exactly sure what was going on. But the girl, Marianne, was when she was 15, she was attacked and raped mm-hmm. and she gave birth to Jeff. To a son. 
Right. Yeah, Jeff. Yeah. So Jeffrey is the son. And then this is the part. It's so stupid. It doesn't make any sense. So, like, I guess because of her attack and rape, she's, like, mentally disturbed. So the guy who owned the house, supposedly, I guess, the guy who burned up or whatever, he turns the house into an asylum. Yeah. So that she can be treated and committed there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's really, really weird. Because he feels guilty. And later we figure out what we learn why he feels guilty. Yeah, I, I with mean, that weird ass flashback. I know. By the way, it's very, very slow. It's it's very slow, and this should be intriguing mystery revealing stuff, but by now you're right. Like at this point you you almost don't care. No. Because you're a little confused. Uh, and you're not sure what's going on, that never feels good. No, and I still don't know what's going on because Jeff then rejoins Diane, uh-huh. and we see the killer destroying somebody's car. Yeah. Burning somebody's car. There's a car on fire, and I think, now that I think about it, I think, oh, God, no, I still have no idea who it was. I have no idea who it is. It could be the sheriff. It could. Be, but all I know is that Jeff and Diane, like, head to the house Oh, it's Toman's car, I think, that's burning. Because well, then they're driving along the street, and Toman jumps up like out of a ditch onto the street, and they hit him. Yeah. And he goes flying off the side of the road, and he's dead. But then Jeff says something like, somebody cut off his hands. What? Who? Someone when? was cutting. Someone cut off his hands. He was asking for help. Yeah. Uh, oh God, I, I don't get it. Was, plus, it was way too dark. Couldn't see what was going on at all during uh-huh. this scene. Like, like seriously, the screen was almost entirely black. They get in the car, they arrive at the house, and now I guess it's unlocked. So Butler can go inside and, and explore everything, touching everything, leaving Diane in the car. I don't understand why he left Diane in the car, and I don't understand why everything slows back down again at this point. This is where I thought, okay, there must be more to Jeffrey than meets the eye. He almost seems like he's in a trance going through what I guess was his childhood house, which actually, now that I think about it, begs a few questions. But anyway, yeah, he's like touching some things and he's walking around and he's closing his eyes. And then uh, the killer calls the mayor. Uh, The mayor's back home. And again, this is Marianne Butler and invites the mayor over, taunting him that his daughter is there too. Right. The mayor grabs a gun or whatever and goes, and then... A uh, butler back in the house finds his grandfather's diary. And I know. This, it, it, yeah. It's just a stupid exposition dump. Like it's super long. Super it's super, dumb. and it's that it's that weird sepia toned silent movie feeling flashback, which could be cool. I think it could be cool. It just goes on for so long that it gets tiring. Yeah, I almost feel like. I suppose, but I expected there to be, like, it felt like there should be that music behind it, like, (laughs) 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 but it's not. Instead, it's very serious, and it, it, it starts out when he turns the house into asylum to help Marianne, but he didn't trust the doctors, and, like... The the dad and the doctors and their wives, I guess. I, I don't guess. know. They they all just seem like rich and snotty and it really well dressed and drinking and smoking cigarettes and stuff. I wasn't really sure what was going on. But the the dad came to not trust the doctors and then I just have in my notes gross. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, it turns out that he, Butler Senior, was banging his daughter. 
Mm, he's the one who raped her, yeah. Right, and got her pregnant, and that's Jeffrey's mom. So Jeffrey, I guess, is his own uncle. <laughs> yeah. This is kind of narrated by Arthur Butler, the the grandfather. Yeah, cause it, right, because it's, it's from his diary. My cruelty to Marianne was inhuman. I know that. I had loved her. I had fathered our child, Jeffrey. I had brought her to this. But I swear that on that afternoon, all I wanted was to save my child. My hope was to get her away from that house. But also, I wanted to set free those other wretches who had so long been abused by the doctors. I knew what they might do if these inmates were freed. And this is my guilt. I knew. And still, I freed them. And you see them all. It's very Walking Dead. Like, they're all, like, lumbering up to the house. (laughs) It's very Night of the Living Dead, actually. That's what I meant, yeah. And they, uh, they lumber up to the house, and they kill the doctors and their wives. And Marianne? Didn't you think anything else was kind of interesting about this scene? I don't know. <laughs> I mean... I didn't know what was happening. I was trying to figure something out, too, because because Marianne was obviously a man trying to affect a woman's voice, I happened to notice that in the flashback scenes, some of the women in there were clearly trans. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, one of the... Especially one... Definitely two of them. And I was like, is this like one of those things where they're trying to say that she went nuts and decided she was a man or something like that, and that somehow the doctor and them I, were, you know, influenced her or something. Like, it just raised more questions. I, I looked this up afterwards because it's actually in um, some of the notes, and many of the people who are in this movie, and especially in this particular scene, were part of Andy Warhol's factory entourage. And that woman I was just talking about in there is a very famous trans woman of the time, Candy Darling. Mm. She was quite an icon, I think, actually, uh, in the 70s. Um, wow, I didn't know that. And was in a number of uh, Andy Warhol's movies and um, hung around with the, you know, again, with the Velvet Underground. So I thought that was interesting, but it did raise more questions for me because I thought that might have something to do with it. Because, you know, at this time, we there's a lot of this stuff where the twist turns out to be that the mentally ill person thought they were a woman or something like that, you know? Right. And I thought maybe that was what made Butler so angry is that they were turning her daughter into a man or something like that. But no, it, it doesn't turn out to be anything like that. No. No, I think I think they killed her. I think they killed Marianne. But, yeah. But Butler, that's... it said that after that, well, it, again, it's him. It's him narrating. He says, for the next 40 years, I lived in prisons and asylums, but now I'm back for my vengeance. Yeah. And so Diane goes in the house, and Jeffrey is in there, and I guess that from reading the diary, he's figured this all out, and he tells her that his dad is still alive. And she's like, no, that can't be because people saw him burned. And he's like, well, no, it was a transient. Like there was like, yeah. How does he know this? I don't know. It must've been in the diary, I guess. It must've been. Yeah. We just didn't get that bit. But apparently, apparently Butler faked his own death by burning a transient to death. And he's still alive. And then we learn that that whole city council, 
they were the inmates of the asylum. So yeah. apparently, apparently, <laughs> after they all broke out and killed all the doctors and stuff, they just set up shop in town. And were like, I'll be sheriff, and you can be <laughs> the switchboard operator, and you can be the mute newspaper guy, and we'll just go on about our lives as though nothing has happened. How they pulled that off, I'm not quite sure, but that's that. So um, at this point, Alfred Butler comes walking down the stairs. And that was weird, too. Like, he looks weird. I, I don't know. I, I don't know how to describe his look. He's He looks crazy. He's got, like, mm-hmm. wild, crazy hair. And he's kind of got, like, a Boo Radley thing going on, except yeah, for, like, with, like, Einstein right. hair. They're just trying to make him look, like, especially old, I think, I guess. But I guess. It's, diff- it's got to be a different actor playing it. He doesn't look at all like the guy in the flashbacks. Right. No. Not at all. He looks yeah. younger, in fact. Yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> uh, Diane shoots him, I think. I don't know. The The mayor shows up, right? Yeah, then he shows up, and he's got his shotgun at the same time that uh, also Jeffrey has a gun. And Jeffrey's just being bizarre. He's, like, put on a tux for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like a, or, like, a smoking jacket or something. I don't know. It's weird. Like, Oh, all... he has, like, a Dracula cape. At one point, yeah. he spins around, and you see that he's wearing a cape that's red on the inside. I don't know what that's all about. Like, he j- like he found out that he was the incestuous child, love child, and so... He's claiming the house. He decided he was going to become, like, yeah, he's going to become, like, a gothic... <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's weird. stupid. <laughs> but but the, and I don't understand. I have these things in my notes and like I'm reading them thinking, "What? Be- the sh- not the sheriff, the mayor and Jeff shoot each other? Why? I don't Quickly, why. I think that you've got a couple things going on here. I think Jeff, obviously Jeff knows now that the mayor is one of the inmates who okay. killed his mother and drove his father crazy or whatever. Okay. So he wants him dead and then the mayor is either confused or he just thinks he needs to take out Jeffrey, too. So anyway, they shoot each other at the same time, and they both die. And then Diane wanders out of the house. and then Well, we the, come... but the, after they shoot each other, that's when the elder butler appears, and he calls Diane Marianne. Oh, and, you're and, right. And chases her upstairs, but she shoots him. And then that's it. You're right. That's when she shoots him. I thought I was thinking he came down earlier. And then we cut back to the like the beginning, like the wraparound with where it's her just like walking around the grounds and a, a more long, stupid narration. And she talks about the house is being torn down, but it'll always exist in her memory or something. I don't know, something really stupid. I mean, it's it's pretty classic gothic horror type material, though, isn't it? Yeah, that's fair, I guess. I, I think in a better movie, it would have worked just fine. Uh, b- better presented, even. It might work better. But it's convoluted, and it's they're not particularly skillful at doing that the right way. You know, there's a right way to kind of unfold things and to kind of bring it, in, introduce the intrigue and the mystery without just uh, confusing the hell out of us. And I think that's mostly what happens here. I, I, I actually, I don't think the movie is that bad. I do agree that it was confusing, but I also agree, I think it was quite stylish. And I think they were trying to go for something that just kind of fell flat. But yeah, and it's kind of a waste of some of these talents <laughs> here. But. 
it uh, did the drive-ins for a while. Again, it kind of fell into obscurity. Elvira picked it back up for her show, and then Canon re-released it, I think in 1981, calling it Death House. But it clearly influenced Black Christmas. There, you cannot, nobody can tell me that it hasn't. Yeah. And also this style of movie, we've seen better done. Yeah, it reminded me of some things. It reminded me, what was that movie with Donald Pleasance where like the... The inmates took over the asylum. Do you remember what I'm yeah. talking about? I don't know. Don't Look in the Basement yes. was a grindhouse yes. movie like that. You know, it, it a little bit like Burnt Offerings is one of these, you know. A little bit, but that was a good movie. <laughs> it was. It was better done, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's funny because I think, obviously, this movie's been around for a long time, and every Christmas it's come up. Like, we've talked about it, and I don't know why we've not done it up until this point. Apparently, CBS got the rights to it, although, I mean, being public domain, I don't understand how this works, but they showed, one, at least one of their big affiliates in Chicago would show this every year at Christmas, and it did really well for them. There's a sequel. Did you see that? There's there's like two sequels, I think. Are there? I think L- Lloyd Kaufman came back and at least had a cameo part in the third one. Oh, I didn't know there was a third one. I just read, and it was made much later, like in the 90s or something. Yeah. Um, and it, it looked awful. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> I, didn't, uh, I didn't watch it, of course, but it didn't look good. But it did, like, I don't know, new people move to this town and find out about the gruesome history and something. I don't know. It looks stupid. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I can't lie. I, I, I didn't like it. <laughs> I, it was it was really kind of a struggle to get through, and it's short. It's only like an hour and twenty minutes long, and it feels longer. <laughs> I, it does, and I kept like I'm watching it on my computer. I kept touching the uh, the keypad to like check the time, and every it would be like three minutes later since the last time I checked it. I'm like, ah. Oh my God! Will this movie never be over? I had to stop and go to sleep and wake up to watch the last twenty minutes. <laughs> oh my gosh, it was terrible. I like I, uh, I, I'm moving my mouse like on the timeline, like checking to see like when do the credits start? <laughs> like, okay, the the credits start two minutes before the runtime, so I've really only got twenty two minutes left. Oh my God. <laughs> It was, it was, I did not enjoy it. But again, I, I'm really surprised that it took us this long to get to it. Oh, yeah. And now we can check it off the list and move <laughs> on and never speak of it again. <laughs> Thank you, patrons. I still think this is going to be a memorable Christmas episode for us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks again to our patrons uh, for supporting us this year and for picking this movie for us. We really appreciate your input. We also appreciate your support. If you would like to support us as well, head on over to patreon.com slash chainsaw podcast and uh, you'll find all of the mini-sodes that we've done up until this point. Uh, and then every month we do one or two. Uh, we also give you some say in what movies we're going to do in the future, especially with requests. And we have a couple other goodies there for you as well, as, as well as the unedited copies of our phone call conversations. Well, this is, at times get kind of interesting. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend. They can find us if you just Google Two Guys in a Chainsaw Podcast. And uh, we've got our website there, twoguys.red40net.com. Please go there and leave us a comment or leave us a comment on our Facebook page. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. This is Two Guys and a Chainsaw. Chainsaw.